This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Wednesday's Women. Um, as you saw by the title, today we're going to be focusing on the census and our census lady, Stella goslin Um, A lot of the information that we found on her was minimal, <laughs> so we just wanted to put that out there and preface this that her information isn't very long, but we felt that she was a very important person to talk about for the work she did for the census and for suffrage. And we wanted to make sure we highlighted the importance of the census in a census year. Yes, so this is a census year 1920 when the 19th Amendment was passed was also a census year. And so it's very important not just for general counts, but it determines a lot of your funding, how your districts are made, so who represents you. Um, so it is very important to voting, and Stella was a suffragette in to on top of being an enumerator for the census. Um, the U.S. Census Bureau has actually always been ahead of the curve when it comes to employing women. So when the census was first ruled out, U.S. Marshals would take the number on horseback, and they would basically just ride into people's little settlements and be like, how many people live here? And they would tell them, they'd say, oh, how many of you are white men over the age of 16? And this was done so that the country could determine if they ever went to war, how many eligible soldiers did they have? Um, but also, like, only the, the country only cared about men at that point. <laughs> Let's be honest. So then in 1880, there was a shift from U.S. Marshals to actual enumerators. So people who, it was their full-time job to just go out and knock on doors and say, hi, how many people are in your household? How many of these people are men? How many of these people are women? And how many of these people are children? Um, people still do that today. So obviously, Corona sort of messed that up a little bit, but they did start knocking on doors again August 11th. So if you have not filled out your census and the U.S. Census Bureau knows you live in your house, they will come knock on your door and say, hey, do you have a minute to fill out your census with me? Um, this rule was actually typically filled by women in the late 1800s, just because they are a little more personable, viewed as a little more personable than men. So you'd be a little more responsive to a little old lady knocking on your door than like a U.S. Marshal on horseback with a badge and gun. So they did employ women from 1880 on. By 1909, 10 years before the 19th Amendment, um, granted national women's suffrage, over 50% of the Census Bureau's 624 permanent employees were women. So they have permanent employees who work for really 10 years getting the census organized, um, maintaining census records. So all of the census records stay inside of the Census Bureau. They never get sent anywhere else. So no one else knows um, your race or where you live or your sex. Um, that stays all within the Census Bureau. So they do have permanent employees. They also hire temporary employees and they're known for hiring college students because it pays really well and you make your own hours. You just say, I spent four hours knocking on doors today, please pay me. And they do. 
By 1920, the Census Bureau would once again push forward appointing the first five female supervisors, as well as the first three female expert chiefs of divisions. So these women would oversee the supervisors. You usually have one in like a region, and so that region reports their supervisors. And then your chiefs of divisions, you have different divisions within the Census Bureau. In addition to the population schedule for the 1880 census, enumerators also completed schedules for mortality, agriculture, social statistics, and manufacturing. So the first census, I think it was like the first census only asked like three questions. It was your race, your age, and your sex. Um, and the race option only had like three. Um, as the census continued, they began to ask more questions. So. Um, Today's census will ask what your occupation is. Um, I believe it asks your sexual orientation, though you cannot, like if you're uncomfortable filling it out, you don't have to. Although again, it all remains private. Um, so they were asking more social statistics. The first census, oh, it was six questions. The name of the householder, the names of all the other people in the household, um, and everyone, the names of all the other people in the household were divided into the following categories. Free white males who were at least 16 years old, free white males who were under 16 years old, and free white females, all other persons, and slaves. The census reflected the values of the United States in 1970. So um, obviously there was still slavery going on. Um, also, women weren't holding jobs like men were, and we were not using women in our military. Um, glass, glass writes, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. Indians were not counted until 1870. So when they say Indians, they mean Native Americans. Um, and that was really because Native Americans weren't recognized as citizens up until that point. Um, and it, actually, I think it was after that. They just started to count them for enumeration purposes. Yeah, which is a real shame. It really is. And, like, the census has a fairly racist past. Yeah. Which, I mean, makes sense because it follows the morals of the country, really, at the time. And so with each census every 10 years, you see more. And for example, with the 2020 census, this is the first census that's able to be conducted on the internet mm -hmm. so that shows a big uh difference in our society in the fact that we rely on the internet and on uh social communication through technology more than ever yeah and it wasn't that like the rest of the country was progressive and the census was just behind it was just the whole country was racist at points <laughs> and yes. so the census reflects that yes so speaking of how much the census was uh, inter, or actually, let me start that over. Speaking of the amount of people, I'm gonna try one more time. As we've already stated, the census has been very good at being intersectional and including women early on. So the person that we're gonna talk about today is Stella M. Goslin, sometimes known as Estella, who was the first female enumerator for the census. So Stella was born on July 16th, 1857 in Ohio. Um, and she actually was only raised by her father because her mother died shortly after childbirth. 
Her father, Asher, worked as a physician and served on the school board while Sarah, her stepmom, kept house and participated in women's clubs like the uh, Heterocultural Society and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So following her early education, Stella enrolled in Oregon, which would become Missouri Normal School. It's also was known as the Northwest Missouri Normal School. Um, and she graduated there in 1877. The year later, she accepted a job as assistant principal in the nearby Falls City, Nebraska, and continued to be active in the Oregon Teachers Institute. While she was teaching, she also participated in local women's unions and the Holt Country Women's Suffrage Association. We looked into that, can't find very much information on it. If there would be information on it, we would go into more in more detail about it. But it should just be noted, um, it was a part of NASA. we know that. Um, just by the Women's Suffrage Association title, that always fell under NASA. Um, most counties had one, and so they didn't always keep records of like smaller counties. Like, I'm sure Lawrence County probably had one. There's probably like six people. So there's probably no record of it. Yeah, absolutely. On July 10th, 1883, she married John F. Cowan, an 1881 Princeton graduate who had business uh, that was growing concerns in Butte, Montana. So um, their marriage didn't start off very happily, I want to say. So a week after their marriage, they arrived in Butte where John developed his reputation as a businessman, civil servant, and politician. But they experienced the rougher side of the frontier mining business. And in 1885, John tried to avoid testifying as a witness to a murder trial, in a murder trial. And in the 1890s, the growing family moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I tried to find information on his murder trial. Yeah, and there's no information. It just says, yeah, he was, a, he was try or they wanted him to be a witness to a murder trial, but it doesn't say who was killed, how he was a witness, what happened. There's no, no. information. And anything you can find on Stella, it, there's like always the sentence in there that's like, oh, her husband tried to avoid testifying as a witness. And I'm like, but a witness, like, where? Did he actually kill the guy? Did he have to testify? Like, there's no information. It's just like, oh, by the way. Yeah, because I couldn't even find a picture on it. Mm -mm. So then in the 1930s, they moved to California to live with their daughter, Frances, in the Francis family. Um, and Stella ended up passing away March 10th, 1945 in Los Angeles. So the reason we're discussing Stella today is Stella Goslin Cowan worked as an enumerator for the census in 1880 when they first started employing women. In May 1880, Stella's education and knowledge of the community and strength of will earned her and seven other women in the census district an appointment as enumerator for the decennial count. Enumerators began counting the population on June 1st and Stella enumerated 862 people in the town of Oregon for which she would receive the standard enumerator pay of two cents per name. What a, what a salary, man. So you like, get paid better than that today. Yeah, you do, because two cents per name. So say you go to a household that has six people in it, that's 12 cents, and that's probably gonna take you probably about 15 minutes at a household. Maybe, if you get an old lady who really wants to talk to you a lot and give you cookies, it might be longer. So it's going to take you time to get to even a dollar. 
Um, following Stella's pioneering work as a census taker in 1880, at least four out of the next five enumerators for her district were women. The returns for the 1890 census were, de were destroyed by a fire in 1921, and the enumerators' names are lost, but they do know, like, this district was a mostly female enumerator district, this district was mostly male enumerator district, because um, those records, like, the records of enumerators are sometimes kept outside of the Census Bureau, just because that plays no effect into, like, your information. It's just, like, this person was employed. Where um, is the uh, census? Is it in D.C.? Or where is I it? I think it's in D.C. Oh, no. You send your completed paper forms to either Phoenix, Arizona, or Jefferson, Indiana. Hmm. Interesting. Not where I thought it would be kept. But after... It's in Maryland. Oh, okay. Um, so it's probably right outside of D.C. Okay. After her three daughters and one son started school, Stella returned to the activism that she had displayed in Missouri. Over her next several decades in Salt Lake City, Stella devoted most of her time to the Ladies Literary Club. During Stella's long tenure, she participated in talks ranging from pensions, old age care, municipal property ownership, and utility fees to current events. World War I, of course, and of course, women's suffrage. Stella served in several leadership positions in the Literary Club. She served as member of the Finance and Program Committees, as corresponding secretary, as vice president in 1918, and starting in 1919, she served as president. In 1916, Stella and fellow club, woman ho club women hosted the Congressional Union for Suffrage, a national women's political group which in 1914 had successfully lobbied the US Congress for the first women's suffrage amendment in several decades. So just a refresher, the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage was Alice Paul's um, sort of committee under Nassau. And then she later ends up leaving Nassau to form the National Women's Party. In addition to her work with the women's clubs, Stella also supported the Red Cross and helped found the Sarah Daft House, a nonprofit senior living community in Salt Lake City. So she was a very busy woman and she was a very active woman, which is another reason it's so um, disheartening to not be able to find a lot of information on her. Because she clearly, like some of the women we discussed, they're sort of only notable in that they were very involved in the suffrage movement. They didn't have jobs outside the home. They didn't, um, they weren't involved in other groups. She was clearly involved really across the board. And so it is disheartening to see such little record kept on her. And I will say the literary clubs were a common thing early on in women's suffrage. They almost kind of were a disguise because literary clubs get the sense that they're discussing literature. So they're discussing books and ideas like that. But as we said, based on the types of um, activism those groups did, they were very political in census and they were very interested in social reform and what was happening in their communities. So while it seemed like it was just a book club, it was really more of a disguise towards anything else. However, it is important to mention that people that could not read in the community that were female probably were not inducted and felt comfortable going to those type of meetings because that was a part of the literary club as in the name um but those were very important 
in early suffragette activism. Yeah, because your husband was less likely to be opposed to you going to a literary club than you going to a suffrage association. Yep, absolutely. So with all that in mind, we will move on to our discussion questions for this week. So these discussion questions are going to focus primarily on the census as of 2020 and what you should get an idea about as listeners. So first question, why is it critical that women participate in the 2020 census? So the census records not only the number of people here, but also the demographics of people here. Um, so it's really important for everyone to participate so that we get an accurate view of um, the percentage of our country who is Hispanic, who is African-American, who is female. Um, and then obviously you have your demographic divisions within that. Do you belong to the LGBT plus community? Do you belong um, to a Jewish faith? There are like other demographics they split you into, particularly for women to have an accurate count of not only how many women there are, but now with the idea of occupation, also finding out how many women are working in the home and how many women are working in the workforce is very important because obviously women working in the home are just as important as working in the workforce, but it's a different labor equation because you're not receiving pay. And so when we discuss our labor market um, and unemployment, things like that, looking at women who participate in the home versus the work field are different. Also, you want equal representation in Congress. And so if only five women fill out the census, they're gonna be like, oh, we only need one female Congress member. Obviously more than five women have filled out the census and just like, I'm terrible at math, hence a social science degree. Um, <laughs> so I have to pick like a hundred people and then do it that way. So like if you have 100 people and 60 of them are white men and then like five of them are women, like white women, and then like you break it down that way, like you're going to get representation based on that. And so that's not really what you're looking for. You want accurate representation in your Congress. If 60% of the United States are women, 60% of our congression, congressional members should be women. Yes, and the other thing is it's really crucial that women participate because it's going to determine funding. So women's issues that need supporting can't be unless those areas are getting funding. So if you, as a community, have a high number of women but you're not showing it, it might be hard to get different grants and different assistance from the government for women's shelters, women's um, healthcare units, different things like that. So that's another reason why it's so important that women specifically um, ensure that they're being counted because without it, they're not gonna get the proper funding to care, to make sure that their community is properly caring for their women community members. Mm -hmm. So question number two, with that in mind, what do we wanna see improved that could be accomplished through the census? So what are issues that me and you see that we think that the census being done properly could address or help fix? One thing is clearly representation in government. The other thing I think people don't talk about a lot about is, so we do redistrict all of our states after the census and gerrymandering is a huge issue. Yes. Um, 
And, like, it's not one party gerrymanders and one party doesn't. Like, whichever party is in power will gerrymander state if they can get away with it. Can you, for the listeners, because me and Taylor had a conversation, like, this months ago where she explained gerrymandering to me because as a nurse and as an idiot, I just don't know things. (laughs) And I was just wondering, Taylor, if you could take a moment to explain gerrymandering. Yeah, so every 10 years, our districts get redrawn. And this is just because um, our population looks different. And so you might've had a bunch of people in this area in 2000, but by 2020, there's been a mass exodus. So gerrymandering happens when we're redrawing districts and um, election officials who are redrawing the districts will manipulate the boundaries to favor a specific party or a class of people. And so there's a couple ways they can do this. So they can either try and split up. Um, So I live, Caitlin and I both live in Pennsylvania. So our two biggest democratic areas are Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, just because they're large cities. So what they can do is they can try and split Pittsburgh up into a bunch of little pieces. So they get a lot of districts out of Pittsburgh and then a lot of democratic districts. And they'll do the same with Philadelphia Um, or Typically, that's if Democrats are in power. If Republicans are in power and gerrymandering, like I said, it's not one party's issue. It's an issue across parties. Um, They'll take Pittsburgh and they may divide it into sections, but they'll attach it to a large portion of rural area. And so rural areas tend to vote Republican. Um, Just, that just is how it typically goes. And so that district then becomes a red district because the majority, even though there's a lot of people in Pittsburgh who are blue, there's a lot more people in the urban area. Um, Cases like that usually don't draw as much attention. However, there have been cases where, and you can look them up just like on Google images. I can't remember what it was, but there was one that like diagonally went the whole way across North Carolina in like a little strip, which you may be thinking, is that such a bad issue other than it sways the electoral college votes? And yes, it is because if you're splitting, so if Lawrence is where I live, is about an hour away from Pittsburgh. So this has never happened. But if they tried to tack me into Pittsburgh to swing Pittsburgh red, Pittsburgh and I are voting for different issues. Like what Pittsburgh needs and what I need are very different. Um, That's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Like just realistically, when you live in different areas, you need different things. Yeah, because of the higher amount of population there, I'm sure their crime rates are higher because that's how math works. If there's more people there, then their crime rates are probably higher. So they might need more police reform or more... um, prison reform, whereas in your area, that might not be an issue because you probably have lower rates of crime. And this makes it hard not only on the constituents, but also on the representative who's elected because you literally, like, you can never please everyone as a representative, but you could never do anything to please everyone in your district then because you're representing two polar opposites in one district. Um, so gerrymandering is an issue and sometimes, so there have been Supreme Court cases where they've been like, okay, you guys are being absolutely ridiculous with this. Like, so your districts have to completely touch. You can't have like 
this is district one and this is also district one like they have to touch um there's a couple other rules but the idea is the districts all have to have the same number of people in them so technically if there were no rules as long as you could get 10,000 people in each district no matter what the district looked like um it would technically count as a congressional map so we do have rules in place to say like don't be ridiculous um it still does happen and it will likely happen this year as the population changes um the idea is just minimize the damage gerrymandering does so we want everyone's vote to count and we want everyone to recognize the importance of their vote but if your district is gerrymandered you will get this sense that your vote doesn't matter because there are 5,000 people, there are 4,000 people in Pittsburgh voting, but there are 6,000 people in rural areas voting. And so you feel like you can't get the representation you need. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to see improved through the census is uh, specifically uh, funding for education. In rural areas, a lot of people don't participate in the census. And I know that that can really affect the education for those in those areas. And it's really important if we want people to be knowledgeable and have the skills they need to fight for their different wants, they need to be educated on how to fight for them. And without proper funding, schools have to struggle to try to meet the same criteria and standards as schools that do receive a lot of funding. And it's really hard anyhow with public education because they're fighting against private institutes. And we have a big issue in our country right now over private versus public funding. And so it's just important to make sure that we fill out the census because then that's another way we can get funding to those locations. I also just want to add, there's a lot of talk of if schools don't return, people don't want to pay their school taxes because they feel like they're not getting use out of it. Um, you pay that tax into the community, first of all. So if you live in an area, even if you don't have children, you pay into the community, um, mostly because you don't want uneducated people living in your community. Like, I don't know how to get people to understand <laughs> that the people who are going to school are going to likely live in this community. And so here, I just want to bring up, like, in the middle of that, we don't mean people that don't go to college are uneducated. We just mean no. in high school, you can be very educated with a high school diploma, and that's it. Because that's, like, the main basis of understanding how to be an informed citizen is through high school education. So I just wanted to clarify that that's not what we mean. Yeah, no, you don't have to go to college and you don't even have to go to a trade school. You want the people graduating from that high school to have an educational basis. You want them to be able to enter the workforce with minimal issues. You want them to be productive members in society. And if we're not funding education, we're not going to see that. So just wanted to get that cleared, first of all. Second of all, if you don't participate in your census, don't complain about your school taxes because your school then didn't get funding for you. And because of that, they had to increase their taxes because they missed out on funding. So really you raised your own taxes there, which is just a silly thing to do. No one wants to raise their own taxes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, those are, 
And I mean, I agree with you because the other big thing I feel is representation in Congress and everything. So those are some really big issues that I would like to see improved through the census. Now, given the state of the pandemic, what can we and anyone listening do to encourage more people to participate in the census? And just for some clarification, as of last week, only 63% of people have done the census so far. So we're missing almost half, 47% of people in the country. Just, and you would think, because the plan was before the pandemic happened that this was going to be the most successful census ever because the internet was included. So not only were they going to be going house to house, but people can utilize the internet, which is a lot more accessible to people versus uh, filling out the form and getting it to the mail. So I just wanted to say what I think is that we need to be encouraging people through talking about it. So we're doing something right now by promoting the census through this podcast. The census is so important. It should be talked about just as much as the presidential election. And since it happens only once every 10 years, that's another big reason why it needs to be talked about just as much this year as the presidential election. The presidential election, who is our president, changes every four years. Whatever information they come up with this year, we're stuck with for 10 years. That's the funding we're stuck with for 10 years. That's the representation we're stuck with for 10 years. So that's why we need to make sure we're telling our friends, we're telling our parents, we're telling anybody we know, hey, have you filled out your census yet? So if you haven't filled your census out yet, you need to. It's vitally important to you and it's vitally important to your community. And you may think the things we've listed off don't matter to you right now, but they could in the future. You could have a child in the near future and need to utilize the education system. You could fall on hard times or find yourself in an unhealthy relationship and need to use a shelter for a period of time. You could be unhappy with a law that passes in which your congressional representative had voted differently, but because your congressional representative represents a different group of people than just you, he didn't vote the way you wanted him to. So I'm going to put this out here. You need to fill out your census. This is 10 years worth of information that like Caitlin said, we're stuck with. And it's so easy. In the, what, 1790s, they were literally riding around on horseback counting people. You can, if you've received mail from the census, you can use the pin that has been sent to you to fill your census out online. You can go online and request a paper form of the census be mailed to you. You can request it in several languages if you're not comfortable filling it out in English. Um, you are not required to fill out any citizenship information. So even if this is a big issue where people say we shouldn't be counting non-citizens, but we should. So even if it's a study abroad student who's living in Clarion for four years while they attend college here, they're not technically a citizen, they're on a visa, but they still affect the way the community spends their money, the money that goes into the community, they still affect those numbers. And you have to think long-term, in 10 years, someone could fill their spot that's also an international student. So even if you're not a citizen of the United States, but you're here for like an extended period of time, obviously if you're visiting for the weekend pre-pandemic, you didn't have to fill out a census. But if you were staying for an extended period of time, you should fill out your census. There's no citizen citizenship requirement. ICE is not going to come after you. All of the data is stored in the Census Bureau. And it's so easy. You go online and put in a PIN number. And you say, my name's Taylor. I'm 21 years old. I'm a white female. 
I live at this address. Other people who live at this address with me, my name wouldn't go first because I'm not the breadwinner of the household, but just saying for the example would be my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, and you send that back. Like it's all online. You just hit enter. If you do not have a pin for online, you can call the Census Bureau. There is a number listed. You can call that number. They will assign you a temporary pin and you have to immediately go on and do your census with that pin. If you have visual impairments or something other that would impair you from doing it online or on paper, so you have poor internet connection, visually impaired, whatever that may be, you can call in and report your household number. There's like no excuse. Like if you're stuck in traffic going to work, call the Census Bureau. You're gonna know all the information for the people they want. Like if, if you're the household owner, I think that's what they call it, owner of the household as the top one, you're gonna know all the information because like, how old are they? Um, you know, where do they live most of the time? Also important to know, if you are a college student, such as Caitlin now, you need to fill it out for where you would have been April 1st, 2020. So obviously a lot of colleges sent their students home, but we would have been at Clarion on April 1st. So we have to fill our census out as though we are at Clarion. If you live in a college housing, like in a college dorm, you've been counted by your university. So congratulations, you have no work to do. Um, and I did wanna just bring up, there's been a lot of talk about um, the census being extended and they recently decided they're not going to extend the census. Um, so the census is usually, they submit and finalize the information and have it able to be uh, seen by the general public in January, December. Yeah, yeah, somewhere there at the beginning of the year. Um, so for them to be able to organize that data, they are going to be finishing their counts in September. And due to the pandemic, they've lost a lot of time going door to door. And also it's gonna take a lot more time because you're gonna have to make sure that your uh, enumerators going out are wearing masks and also the, making sure that they're following specific practices, staying distant from whoever's home they're going to, all of that. So that takes up more time than normal. So they're not only missed out on a lot of time, but now they have to take more time for when they are working here. So they were originally looking to extend it till March. Um, it passed through Congress, but it was not looking like it was going to pass through the Senate. And they did eventually, the uh, general, I don't know what they're called. The person who runs the Census Bureau, who's the top person in the Census Bureau, they decided that they're going to stick with their normal uh, review date of September. So it's just really important to make sure everybody goes and does this now because there isn't going to be an extension. So we really need to make sure we get that done ASAP. Yeah. So if you haven't filled out your census, go online. It's is it census.org? I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you just Google census, the first thing that comes up is the Census Bureau. They've taken millions of dollars out in ads to be the first thing that comes up everywhere. Um, resources there to help you figure out how you can fill it out best for you. Um, find out if you're a hard to reach district. So Clarion actually is a hard to reach district. We have a very low participation rate. Um, which is really sad because most of our participation rate comes from the university counting students for themselves. So 
find out if you're a hard to reach area and talk to your neighbors about it. Be like, oh, hey, did you fill out the census? Maybe call them, don't see them face to face because there's a pandemic, but you know, <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. Yell at them from your porch. <laughs> but Facebook. Yeah, share it on social media. Facebook, I think it's every month they run like a I've been counted thing you can share and they give an updated census count. Share that and say, this is how you fill out your census. It will affect us for 10 years. That's a long time. I don't, in 10 years, where will we be? I'll be out of law school. That's wild. I'm going to be lifting old people still. Probably. I'm sorry. But 10 years is a long time to be stuck with inaccurate data. Make sure you fill out your census. Get the best resources available for your community because even if you say you don't like your community, you live in it, so you have to like it a little bit. And if you ever want to keep up with some ads and different things, you can follow us on CU Engage um, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we do updates about the census as they come out. We do updates about the census, and we play census trivia on Saturdays. So, yeah, well, I I'll be on tomorrow. What? I said, so if there's census trivia, why wouldn't they look at our things? Yeah, go play census trivia. You might be really good at it. Sometimes I'm surprised at the answers people get right and the answers people get wrong. I'm not judging anyone because, like, I wouldn't know the answers if I didn't look up the questions. But I'm always like, wow, I'm really impressed you got that one. And then, like, they don't get the next one. I'm like, hmm, I appreciate random knowledge. So that has been our episode for this week. Make sure you go fill out the census. Who are we talking about next week? Next week, we are not talking about a specific person. To wrap up Suffragette Summer, um, it was supposed to coincide with the starting of our classes, but then everything got moved around. But to wrap up the Summer of Suffragettes, we are going to be recapping all of the organizations we've covered. So we have a timeline of the organizations, when they were created, when they were disbanded, if they were disbanded. Um, and we have a couple other organizations who unfortunately we didn't get to talk about at other points during the season. Um, so like I've said before, there's only so many weeks in summer. And so we didn't get to cover every suffragette we wanted to. So if you go over to our social media, see you engaged um, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then also, I think Wednesday's Women is sharing it on Twitter too. Um, we, have, we have a Twitter and Instagram and Facebook for the podcast alone as well. Um, you can go there and we will be sharing a different suffragette every day until the 26th to celebrate the 19th Amendment. So we will be covering all the organizations next week from NASA to the National Women's Party to the Alpha Club, um, all the way back. I think we cover the Equal Rights Association or the Equal American Rights Association, I think it's called, um, which was the first suffrage organization that was founded. So it'll be fun. Yeah. So make sure you guys like, share, and subscribe this episode if you want to hear more, and we will see everyone next week. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening, and make sure that you go out and register to vote.